Welcome. Today I have as my special guest, renowned photographer and visual historian, Bill Bernstein. Bill has had a storied career, which began in the 1970s at New York City's Village Voice newspaper. While Bill and I share certain similarities in our background, it's only in recent years that I've had the pleasure to cross paths with him, mostly surrounding 2018 Studio 54, the documentary by Altimeter Films and Sirius XM Studio 54 Radio. Beyond the magic of Studio 54, Bill's photography and stories give us a true insight into the cross-section of what was nightlife was like in New York in the late 70s. His images take us back to a time and place that no longer exists, yet he captures the moment of that emotion so clearly that those of us who were there can feel it again today, and those of us who weren't can hopefully see that moment in his photographs. Today we're celebrating the release of Bill's latest book entitled The Last Dance, which chronicles New York City's 1970s club culture and is available at BillBernsteinFineArt.com. Bill, welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Thanks, Marsha. Nice to be here. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Stay warm up in New York there. We're trying. <laughs> And happy holidays down in Hollywood, Florida. But well, you know, north and south, I've kind of become a snowbird this year, and and I'm rather beginning to like it. So good, that's great. I would like to invite you, please, to start off. And I gave a very brief, encapsulated description of your background. But I'd love for you, in your own words, to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here today, how you got to, um, you know, uh, the place where in our mission as the heartbeat of the dance floor, we like to chronicle various heartbeats and what makes up those heartbeats. And rather than being a person who is a creator, you are a person who is a chronicler and you have recorded and witnessed those exact expressions of those heartbeats. And so please tell us a little bit about your journey and, uh, and, and how you came here today to us. Sure. Well, let's see. I started off uh, basically at the Village Voice in New York City um, in the mid-70s as a photographer. Um, and I was interested, I've always been interested in, in, cultures, different cultures, different what I call tribes. And I kind of think of myself, I like to think of myself kind of as an anthropologist in a sense, um, just just always been interested in different people from different places. So I started off, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Village Voice, and I was primarily covering events that were happening uh, around New York City. Um, I would get assigned to photograph um, the theatrical pieces, um, a lot of portraiture, artists, um, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and one night um, I was assigned to go to Studio 54. And I was interested in that because uh, Studio 54 opened up in 1977 and it kind of became an overnight success, I would say. Yeah, that's I mean, an understatement. <laughs> that's an understatement. And I remember that like one night um, tuning into my favorite radio station, which was a rock and roll station. And all of a sudden it went to 24 hour disco. 
And that was about the time that uh, Saturday Night Fever, the movie, came out. And as you walked around New York City uh, and, you know, door windows were open and, you know, people were all you could hear was the soundtrack from Saturday Night Live, the BG soundtrack. So it was just like it just overtook New York City and I'm sure the rest of the country. Um, this whole kind of disco phenomenon that happened. And that's when Studio 54 opened. So I was very interested in it as, you know, as an anthropologist. What is this new culture that, you know, seems to be penetrating the airwaves and the dance floors and, and that kind of thing. So when I was sent to Studio 54 that night, I was really interested to see what it was all about. Um, and so the event was, um, was uh, Lillian Carter, the then President Carter's mother, who was being honored for some work that she had done in India. So it was like an awards dinner. Um, and um, so I had no idea what to expect, really, because, you know, this was all new, uh, you know, and I was basically kind of an old hippie, I guess. <laughs> you know, I kind of came from the whole Woodstock thing. Um, sure. sure. I think a lot of people don't realize that the private party that you're describing, there was a lot of that that went on prior to the doors being opened to the general public. So 99% of the people who read about 54 in the papers, et cetera, et cetera, you know, this was like a whole different side. So you were immediately brought in yeah. to this amazing environment. Exactly. Exactly. It was, and I, you know, like I said, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and so there was, you know, there were tables and there were people in tuxedos and, you know, it was like a real event. It was a fashion show. And all of this I sort of documented for the assignment that I did for Studio for uh, the Village Voice. But when it was over, I decided that, you know, hey, I'm actually in Studio 54 and I have my camera. And who knows when I'll ever be able to get allowed into this place again. And so... I bought 10 rolls of film from a photographer who was leaving. Um, and I basically hung out in the balcony in the shadows for like an hour while they put the tables away and they cleaned up and they got ready for the regular crowd. I guess I don't remember what time. It was probably around 11 o'clock or so. They started letting the regular crowd in. And so I just basically hung out and, and just wanted to see what it was like. And that's when I really... Um, that's when it all really hit me that this is as a young photographer, this is a, this is a, a, a culture. This is a scene that I want to explore and I want with my camera and I want to see what this is all about. And what I was really struck by was the diversity of the crowd. And, um, you know, there was the LGBT Q crowd, which wasn't even called that then at this point. <laughs> no, um, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it was, this is the uh, post Stonewall pre AIDS bubble of time. So there was um, just a kind of an open openness in sexuality, uh, openness, a freedom of expression. Um, there was, um, 
It was also post hippies in Woodstock. Yeah. Which also transformed many of the attitudes and mores that allowed for this crisscross openness. I mean, yeah, it wasn't just in the gay community that, that infiltrated it. This permeated, I think, a lot out of the Woodstock culture. Yeah, exactly. No, that's very true. I mean, the Woodstock culture that I was part of, I was a very young man at that point, but, you know, it was primarily um, white middle-class kids, um, you know, who are anti-war, who are anti-materialism, you know, who are anti the system, you know, whatever that is. Um, you know, it was that kind of culture. Um, and if you look at the movie Woodstock, most of the people you see are white kids, you know? Exactly. exactly. And we had our uniform, the work shirt and the blue jeans, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so as diverse as we kind of thought we were, I guess, at that point, it wasn't really so diverse. No, but that also did lead to that that sex and drugs and rock and roll kind of all being rolled together into that one envelope, which, <clears throat> I mean, it also permeated into the New York nightlife scene that we're talking about today in that it allowed for yeah. that intermingling, that ease of, I mean, it did. just because you were a gay person or were in a an environment, Studio 54, had an environment that encapsulated sex and drugs and rock and roll, except they change it to sex and drugs and disco. Yeah, exactly. That balcony yeah. was a very different environment come two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the infamous balcony, yes. Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. it was definitely infamous. And those green um, curtains that flanked the upstairs bar. Oh, what went on behind there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was a very open time and, you know, it sort of evolved from the Woodstock hippie era, you know, into something different. Things evolved. Things are always evolving. And you're right. It culminated with AIDS that totally changed perceptions and mores, which, of course, filtered down to a whole other conversation. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that these years were a pinnacle of expression, of freedom, of of artistic expression across multiple disciplines. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, if you look and, at, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and there was cross-referencing. There were some people that were the same people that I saw at Haraz, that I saw downtown at Danceteria, that I saw at Paradise Garage, that I saw at, at a private club, that I saw at 54, um, that I maybe saw at the Fun House, which was a d- yet another different club on and on. Yeah, exactly. And I ended up covering a lot of those clubs from the year 77 to basically late 79. I'm going to throw up this graphic of your latest book, which covers the 70s, yes? Yeah, and covers many- the 70s. Covers the late 70s. That picture was taken at Xenon which was sort of like the, um, the, the alternative to Studio 54. It, yes. Had, yes. it, had a lo- it, had, it was going for the same uh, audience, I guess. Uh, it never, no, one, nobody, no place ever reached the status uh, of Studio 54. Studio 54 was unique. It was, but I think Xenon reached the status of, if you couldn't get into 54, you went down the road to Xenon. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And you could probably get into Xenon. 
And, you know, Xenon had its own vibe, which was kind of cool. And it had, it was a, an old theater like Studio 54. So it had, you know, the, the um, what are those things called? Those metal things where you hang lights on in a theater? You know this. Uh, thing. Well, they're, they're fly, it's a fly rail system. It's a rigging system. Yeah, where, exactly. Where pipes is where you hang all kinds of things on scenery. Uh, uh, anything yeah. that yeah. moves in and out up and down has to be connected to something. And back in those days, it was pre-automation. So you literally had human beings pulling ropes. Yeah. So you saw that too at Xenon and Studio 54. You saw the ropes, you know, and you saw a guy standing there getting ready to pull it. You know, well, you know the- Michael Overington, you, do you remember him from, uh, who was the manager of 54 back in the day? Yeah. Uh, he started as a fly rail guy i think i have a picture of him standing at i think that i i've seen the (laughs) photograph and i was going to ask if you were the one who took it but yes indeed that is a photo of him pulling ropes and then years later i worked side by side with his brother martin at the palladium okay we were both on the lighting crew i'm going to allude back and ask you to jump back to your original part of the discussion while i throw up a photo that i thought was very interesting when i heard this story and it is this photograph of this couple. Yeah. And I'm yes. going to tell the story. And that was, that was one of the very first photographs that I took my very first night at Studio 54. After um, that party with, with, uh, uh, Lily and Carter. The private dinner party? During that party. Ah, said, so. Actually, no, I'm sorry. That was after the party. That's when the regular crowd started coming in. Yep. I got the shots that I needed of Lillian Carter and she was sitting next to Andy Warhol and Robert Maplethorpe and all these people. And it was quite a mix of people. It was really interesting. But so, so then I hung out and then the regular crowd came in and though that couple was part of the regular crowd. And, um, and I asked them if I could photograph them, you know, and they said, sure. And I took maybe one or two photographs and that was one of them. That was the cover of the last book I did before this book. Um, and I, as I was shooting them and thinking about what I was seeing, I, I, was, I just was struck by the, their look and vibe. And I thought of the movie Cabaret. Indeed, indeed. Okay? And with gender bending and, you know, just the whole underground scene the whole well, underground and you, you know, can tell from that photograph they were playing a role they weren't standing there smiling as though they were themselves in costume they were the actors you know that was yeah. one of the things that i did find um 54 and kudos to mark veneke uh, and and rebel for picking the right mixture of people because oh, of yeah. all the people that that would show up dressed however wackadoo and boy it did run the gamut um there were people who were inside were really characters and they acted and they played their part and they were the persona of who they were pretending to be that night. That was a big part of that whole scene, I think. And that's something that I was really drawn to. I was really drawn to that, that you could be whoever you wanted to be at those clubs. And, you know, that couple, they ended up going back a lot to Studio 54. They were kind of regulars and they would dress up in different costumes. One night they were like, you know, on a safari. <laughs> and so they were in safari gear. And I think they set up a tent in the middle of the dance floor. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that was all, you know, Rebel was fine with that, you know. Well, of it course. Was, it, was a real it, was, it was yet party. another item that was going to get mentioned in page six the next day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a fantasy, you know, place for people. And, you know, as as many celebrities as, sh- as there were that showed up at Studio 54, I actually decided that first night that, I was really interested in those people, like that couple, people who like were were living out some sort of a fantasy at this club, and it was okay to do that. And they were New Yorkers. They were, you know, probably many of them were just unknown people, but that they lived for that scene. And to me, that was what was really that's what I gravitated towards with with my um, with my work, that anthropological study, because. Honestly, everybody, you know, everyone was shooting the celebrities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the big draw for most photographers. And to me, it was like, okay, well, they're doing that. I don't know if I have anything to add to that, you know, as a photographer, because they're doing it, you know. So let them let them cover that. And it's all fine and legitimate and great. And I'm glad that it's there. And I'm glad we have that as a record. But I just wanted to focus more on those people who live this life. And to me, in many ways, those were people that the celebrities came to be with. Indeed, uh, indeed. And you, know? and you captured a still life of, of what was, in my opinion, part of the magic that was there, part of, of what I'll call a heartbeat, yep. came from the people that populated the place at 54 that I, I believe that heartbeat came as much from the venue itself, the operators, the vision that the owners had, the artists that embodied the night with their music and the lighting effects. But it also just as much came from the dance floor and the people that were there. And there were, a hand, always a handful of notables that you recognized as X, Y, and Z artist or, or athlete or actor or whatever. Mm-hmm. But 80% of the dance floor were the regular folks that are exactly what you were saying. They were the story. They were the personalities. And they were each living out and acting out their own fantasy. Some of them came, I mean, Roll Arena was always Rollerina. Anytime you saw Rollerina at the disco, she was Rollerina. Yeah. But if you saw Rollerina as a regular Wall Street daytime person, you'd never know that was Rollerina. Yes, but that personality was the embodiment of of I believe that of of what was the the group of 54. There were people who just went there to dance. There were a lot of times you could people see people just every day, no costuming, no acting, no folder all. They just came out to dance. Yeah. And had a wonderful time and mixed and mingled with the celebrities and mixed and mingled with the people that were the quote actors and part of the ambiance and flavor. And we were all one on the dance floor. We had one common cause. Yeah. And I think it's that that element that was so unique to that time period that there was a fantasy element to to the to the discos to the nightclubs there was go to a place and become something that you want to be um and 
you know, and then you go to your regular job during the day. We had the luxury of anonymity because nobody had cell phones, TikTok, Facebook. If it wasn't a guy like you who had a camera who was deliberately taking pictures, there were none that existed. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Nobody had ever heard of a selfie at that point. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You know, which is why I think we had the privilege of feeling total abandonment. Yeah. Even in a publicly accessible place like 54 or Xenon, um, you had total abandonment within the confines of that venue. If you wanted more, yeah. then there were private clubs that afforded that. And speaking yeah. of some of the other clubs, you know, we, we talked about views and you spoke briefly about balcony. I believe this view was from the balcony at 54. Yeah. And it just shows that this dance floor is its own universe and everybody is equal on it. That's true. That's true. I mean, there are a couple of elements in there that I, that I love, which is, I mean, first of all, just the, the variety of people on the dance floor in a lot of the shots that I did like this, you know, just the whole range of people. Mm-hmm. Also the fact that, you know, a couple of things there, you know, that was, you know, the, 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 the dusty lights, that you see there. I mean, that was an old theater. That was just an old, you know, like a TV studio. It was a CBS TV studio before the guys converted it to the club. Exactly. And then conversely, we have this beautiful distance shot of the crowd as a very democratic space, if you will. Yeah. And then we get into the personalities and how you again, captured that moment in time. Here it is, that same total abandonment, but we're seeing faces connected with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I see the ecstasy of people just being in their space and sharing their space with the person around them. And you shared a dance with the people you were dancing with and you shared the same dance with the people you didn't know. And it might've just been a fleeting moment or you might've begun a fabulous lifelong friendship from that dance. Exactly. And, you know, and with the, with the um, celebrity element there i mean celebrities would dance on the floor and people would just kind of dance next to them and end up dancing with them and then floating off and you know it was just a very open you know unique environment to to spend a lot of time and when you said the ecstasy of it i mean it's the ecstasy and the ecstasy of those places. <laughs> I think back because then it was so- I think back then it was the ecstasy and the cocaine and the 714s. <laughs> yeah, the 714. Yep. <laughs> and um, you know, all of that, the, the poppers um at places like like Paradise Garage, which we can talk about too. <laughs> and That's to your funny. point of celebrities wanted to be innocuous when they were on that dance floor and they were treated as though they were innocuous. And I think that's part of what the gravitational pull was that brought them to 54. I do too. I do too. They wanted to go out and, 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 and be, and have a really good time with people, you know, not just their hired staff and like people, their friends, but regular people. And I think it gave them a chance to do that, you know, and New York has that quality, too, about how, you know, you see celebrities a lot on the street in New York City, you know, and you don't. The thing is, the, the rule, the cultural rule is you don't really bother people. 
You don't run up to them and ask them for their autograph. You just go, oh, cool, there's Bruce Springsteen or there's, you know, Paulston or, or whatever, you know. And I think that applied at the discos too. You know, hey, I know who you are. You know who I am. Let's just be cool and have a good time. Exactly. I, I you think know? you're absolutely right. And yeah. and I think that 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 attitude of basically ignoring is exactly why celebrities feel comfortable walking through the streets of New York. Yeah. Um, you know, and just being people. It's one of the few places where they can just be people. It's true. It's true. It's what makes one of the things that makes New York really special, you know. Indeed. Um, yeah. Indeed. But um, so, yeah, so that was really for me as an anthropologist with a camera, um, what was so interesting about that club culture back then, you know, and that you could push it. It just kept getting crazier and crazier almost, you know, as it went on, as people understood that, you know, kind of the wilder you get, the better. Well, then we talked about other clubs and talk about crazier and crazier. It was a club called Gigi Barnum. And yeah. as you can remember, Gigi Barnum was in the Boom Boom Room, and it was themed after Barnum's Bailey's Circus. And they had trapezes, and they had craziness there. And you're right. Mm -hmm. Each club tried to outdo the other one in what they, they could do to be a little more over the top than their predecessor, than their neighbor to attract either the same crowd or even a different crowd. Um, yeah. You mentioned Gigi's, earlier, I'm sorry. Gigi's Barnum Room was really one of my, my favorite places. And, you know, it started off as the Peppermint Lounge, the, the original Peppermint Lounge, where the twist started. Chubby, Chubby Checker and the twist. Yeah, it started there. And then in the late 50s, early 60s, and then it evolved, uh, into a couple of other clubs, a club called Hollywood. Um, and then it evolved into Gigi's Barnum Room, which was really a, um, a trans club, you know, transgender men and women. Um, I call it a haven, you know, because it was really a, you know, judgment-free environment for that, you know, that population. And, you know, they, uh, you know, they might've been, um, scared to walk around New York City in drag or, you know, as trans, but, you know, and, and, and rightfully so, because, you know, it was, you know, that was a scary thing for those people back then. But once they were in this club, they were perfectly safe and they kind of ruled the roost. Um, and um, so it, it had that vibe to it. It was... Um, it was a great after hours kind of place, you know, after you finished at Studio 54, you stop off at Gigi's Barnum Room or any wasn't other. Wasn't it in the high 40s? Wasn't it in Times Square area? If memory yeah. Um, Not too I far from Xenon, right? Yeah, I have the, yes, Midtown area. Um, I talk about it in my book because it was one of my, really one of my favorite places and I met and talked to some some interesting people there and um and like that picture actually is that's a trans woman there um and i think her name was angel but i'm not 100 percent sure but this is at xenon but um you know it was a very interesting population to me 
and uh, I met um, a number of trans men and women. And to me, that was as a Jewish guy from the suburbs of New York, that was a whole other world. And, <laughs> Tell me about and, it. <laughs> and an interesting world to me. You know, their lives were really, um, you know, about being who they really felt they were inside, you know, and at, at the risk of their, of, you know, of their lives, basically. You Did know? you ever go to infinity back then? Infinity? Mm-hmm. I don't think it was it was until the eighties, but I'm uh, you know you you may well be right. Uh, yeah. you, you I, may, I never went may to well, you may very well be right, but they also drew a lot of the transgender crowd, and I did see a lot of overlap between I, the the Bar the Barnum crowd and yeah. that. Um, and there was the gilded grape also. Sorry, there was the gilded grape. Yes. Yeah, that was another club that was, you know, uh, you know, a large trans population. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Well, yeah. you know, and and as you've noted, there was a lot of anything goes. I noted you had a lot. Uh, you had it in in some of the excerpts I saw from the book that you've uh, documented Haraz, and that was yet another place, about six blocks north of fifty four eight blocks north of 54 and it attracted more of the disco rock and roll crossover. I remember divine used to do shows there. There mm. were a lot of rock groups that would perform, but then again, there was Wayne Scott, who was a DJ at Haraz was hired by Steve to play 54 when he opened the club because he heard mm. him at Haraz and he played for a while at, at both venues. So there uh, was a lot of that cross population going on. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, Haraz, I think of it's mostly, you know, like almost rock and new wave. More so, of, admittedly, more so. Yeah. And I, I photographed Klaus Nomi there one night, who was great. Sure. Like his operatic voice and his great look. Um, a lot of people remember him. I think David Bowie was on Saturday Night Live with, with Klaus Nomi in the background. That's one of his background singers. Yes, um, yes. You know, but there was a lot of theater within this um, culture, in the in this club culture from the late 70s. There was a lot of theatrical elements to it, you know? Agreed. And there was some cross-population of rock music that filtered into the disco world and the disco medium. Yeah. Not a lot of it, granted. Yeah. But Definitely. there were certain tunes that did find success in both audiences. Absolutely. I mean, even at Paradise Garage, Larry LeVan, you know, who was like legendary God DJ. Oh, rock a, songs. this yeah, is a very good. famous picture of yours. I see it everywhere. And Larry yeah. was just a, a dear, dear friend to me, a brother. This was just such an iconic picture of him mixing at the garage. Yeah. But what a unique and what a special place the garage was. Here's the dance floor uh, yeah. at the club. And, you know, again, it's a totally democratic environment. Although for a private club, and it was only open two nights a week, they had one night that catered more to a gay audience and another night that catered more to a straight audience. But if you were a member... You were considered a member. You were a member of the club. If you okay. chose to go both nights that weekend, that was certainly your prerogative. 
Totally. You know, it was a very mixed crowd. Very mixed, a lot of very mixed. Songs. And you yeah. were there for one reason. You were there to have a great time dancing to some awesome, awesome music. And yeah. yes, it lent itself to a more R&B flavor. There wasn't any such thing called hip hop. It was the immediate precursor to what we now know as house music. But yeah. the fact was you went there to dance and it was a private club and it was open until the sun was well high in the sky. So you could do all your discoing at the clubs. And after the bars closed, you'd go down to the garage or other private venues or Barnum, as you mentioned, and, and yeah. you would finish your night morning dancing there for another four or five hours. Yeah. And you'd, 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 you'd be there for Saturday mass. With Larry Levan. We'd be going to church. <laughs> when the church. tempo would break, it was around 5.36 in the morning, and he'd cut tempo, and we'd be going to church. Yeah, exactly. And there was, you know, they didn't have a liquor license. Um, That's why they, they could do it. Same thing with they, Flamingo. Same thing with 12 West. Uh, and in the 80s, The Saint. Mm. And yeah. they were huge private clubs and they did not have a liquor license. So they did not have to conform to the liquor laws of the city as opposed to an after hours club, like, like a, like, uh, of course the names of them are escaping me right now. Um, but they had to adhere to different things. And actually when 54 was first opened, um, it operated on catering licenses, hence special events. So a lot of those dinner parties, a lot of those events that occurred before the disco doors opened enabled the disco doors to open and sell liquor yeah. because of that catering permit. Yeah. They talk about that a lot in the, in Matt Turnauer's movie, um, Studio 54, the documentary, how every day they would go and get a liquor license for a Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very funny. It, it, you know, but that was, that was the, the reality of the day. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it wasn't about circumventing the law. It was about using the laws as they existed for your purpose. And right. as a private club to open a private club, no one required you to sell liquor. And if you didn't sell liquor, you didn't need a liquor license. So you avoided right. all of those rules and regulations that surrounded the SLA, the state liquor yeah. authority. And, um, you know, places like paradise garage didn't, you didn't really need liquor. I mean, people brought their own, whatever they needed, you know, um, or whatever other libations they chose to consume in whatever manner they chose to consume. Them. Exactly. So, <laughs> so there was always this like, aroma of popper you know which has its own very unique smell poppers which give you a real rush which yes. you need at five in the morning when you've been dancing for the last you know five, four or five hours indeed um, indeed and you know there was there was marijuana and there was cocaine and there was you know there was pretty much everything going on there very you know discreetly but yeah it was certainly there and you're right you went with your your posse to to places like paradise garage and you basically went to dance you know that's really what you did it wasn't it wasn't th really that theatrical as studio 54 was part of part of the the draw of studio 54 was the changing scenery and the lighting and all that kind of stuff 
which was its own unique universe. And but the C and B scene aspect of it as well. What's that? Say it again. The C, the C and B scene aspect of 54, a place like 54, um, as opposed to the private clubs where the purpose was uh, a little more pure, if you will. Yeah, exactly. It was purely to dance and sweat and, you know, and that kind of thing. And, you know, so they were different. And then you had the Mud Club, which was really the anti-disco. It was the, you know, it was the antidote to Studio 54. You know, it was the downtown um, art community, artists. It, it was, um, you know, it was new wave, no wave, you know, anti-disco. Beginning whatever. of punk too, wasn't it? It definitely beginning of punk, you know. I, you know, and it was fun. It was a whole different environment that was 20 blocks south of where I lived as opposed to 20 blocks north of where I lived in the same city. Right. And and it was a completely different environment, but it was just as creative, just as expressive, just as artistic. Totally. Um, and just as totally. wonderful. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, they had live performances there. They had a great sound system. They had a great DJ. Um, you know, it was just a whole, if you compare the two, just in terms of like their entrances, Studio 54 had this big marquee. It was on this, you know, midtown street. It was, you know, it was clean and, you know, really polished looking um, with the line outside. Whereas Mud Club was like way downtown in this really deserted area on this. There's always like some truck parked nearby. It was like an old warehouse area that was dark. <laughs> and, you know, there was there was no sign. There was uh, no know. Soho then either, as the way people know it today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it was uh, a whole different, completely different vibe, you know. Um, and but yet, like you say, it was just just as terrific, you know, in a lot of different ways, you know. Just as great. The diversity of New York City back then, I, I'm so blessed that mm. I was there for all of that um, and right, right in the thick of it. Uh, and, and just so grateful that, that the universe pulled me there into the right moment in time that I was able to firsthand experience it. Cause it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I think in many ways um, a Renaissance period of our culture. Um, so Definitely. many things, both, Negative and positive, I think, sprouted from the 10, 12 years of the 70s into the early 80s. Yeah. And if if you look at it, you know, it was a time in New York City when, you know, Ford to New York dropped dead. You know, New York City was economically like on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, you know, the, the, the police department and the fire department were um, understaffed because of the economic situation. So the economy was in the toilet then too. What's that? The economy was pretty much in the toilet then. Oh, it was totally in the toilet. And, you know, buildings would burn down in the city because the fire, there was there weren't enough fire people to get there. You know, the crime was really high, but, you know, and, to, you know, there's a documentary on Netflix um, about that time period and the mafia was really heavily involved in running the city at that point. 
And just about uh, every nightclub venue that existed on one level or another had their thumbprint on it. Exactly. Whether it was obvious or under the current, I don't think there was any one venue that was 100% exempt. Yeah, exactly. It felt, I mean, the city felt a little like a war zone back then, you know? The well, as Dickens, as Dickens said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It's true. It's very true. You know, and so what happened was, you know, um, you know, rents became very cheap. Um, it was like Berlin, you know, when the wall came down and East Berlin opened up and artists from all over the world, you know, flocked to Berlin in like late, uh, late 80s, like 89, 90. And so New York was a lot like that in, in the 70s. Mm. Um, and so what you had in New York was some of the most creative and talented people in the world living here. You know, if you look back to that time period. Um, in many disciplines, in multiple, multiple disciplines, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, yeah. just, just, just pick photography, painting, drawing, uh, a fashion, music, theater, you, you name it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it's been, it's been talked about and documented and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really unique time period, a bubble in my opinion. And, you know, and I was just starting out as a photographer then too. So it was like the world was just opened up to me in New York, you know, and this, this whole thing became like my personal project because it was so unique and so interesting. And I didn't know where it was going to end or how it was going to end or if it was going to end, but it just seemed to be, you know, every day was a new day and a new club and a, you know, new place to go. And, you know, and so what I feel is that when, when the AIDS crisis, which basically it became a crisis, but before that in the seventies and probably in the sixties, you know, it was the gay cancer, you know, and, um, you know, people were dying. Had it and, even, had it even come to our attention before maybe 78, 79, I, I don't, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an immunologist, but just from my own life experience, what began being called quote gay cancer was around 79, 80. Um, mm. And, and that was the beginning of the whole HIV thing. Now I wasn't in New York in the sixties, nor did I even know really what gay was? So I can't speak to that. I can only speak to my own personal experience. But yes, it was very horrible at that point in time when AIDS began and nobody knew anything. And yeah. it was being called the gay cancer. And I know that if you went to a club, there was a moment in time in 1980-81 when no one knew what caused it and everyone thought it came from poppers. And you were vilified if you opened up poppers inside of a club mm. because everyone thought, well, that's where you get it. And nobody had any knowledge on it. And the only people that seemed to be dying were gay, hence gay cancer. And again, we're getting into a whole sociological thing, which definitely colors our conversation because it changed the world post 1983. Yeah, totally. It the culture, it changed the city, it changed clubs, it changed people's mores. You can have a pre and a post line of demarcation as to how this one thing 
ultimately changed a culture and the world as we know it. And, and what we're focusing on, at least for the context of the book and our conversation <laughs> is all of that, that New York city represented not only to ourselves, but to the world mm-hmm. as a Petri dish of art and culture yeah, and creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, well, like you say about, about, you know, poppers and, and, and just being totally clueless about how AIDS was spread. I mean, you didn't know, for example, if you went to a club and somebody, you were dancing with somebody and they were sweating, if you got some sweat on you, if you could, you know, then get AIDS exactly. or if they were fucking and a little bit of the saliva got into your eye or whatever, or, you know, um, if you touch somebody or, you know, if there was so much so much unknown. And even about- before then, I remember friends who had a cut and they had a cut on their arm in September. And in November, the cut was still there. And in January, the cut was still there. And nobody knew why the cut wasn't healing. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. a year later that there was something that they were calling gay cancer and people were actually dying and people were getting immune deficiency disorders. These were the beginnings of our immune system going kaput. And you're right. Nobody knew how, when, where, why. And sometimes when you finally found out through science, what was going on, many of us looked back at who we were with, what we had done, and did we need to go get a test? And sometimes there wasn't, and at, at a certain point, there weren't even any tests that existed. Yeah. You just prayed that if you didn't feel well that day, it was nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because you didn't that's, know. That's why I call my book Last Dance. <laughs> that's because, very appropriate. Uh, yeah. It's very appropriate, even though Donna Summer did steal the name from you. Sorry to yeah, say that. Yeah. <laughs> my lawyers are working on that in court there but, you go but yeah. it's it's a very appropriate name to the book because you're really chronicling what was the end of an era mm-hmm. in yeah. new york city culture specifically in your book but i think that that new york city culture became pervasive in many cultures around the world yeah and i also think that what i caught during that time period uh, with my camera was the seeds of what we see today in today's club culture. Um, the theatricality, um, you know, the, the, the attention to sound quality, equipment, um, you know, lighting, um, you know, all of this, all of these elements, uh, even the, the influence of, you know, the, the trans population and mm-hmm. the costuming and all of that, you know, kind of theatricality as well as other elements that you see at some of these festivals. Yes. You know, yes. in, in, in today's club culture, which is a big, big part of it, you know, I mean, today yes, it's weird fireworks and great it's, lighting and, you know, it's weird because we had our culture in a venue and the kids of today have festivals, so it's almost like a traveling culture. It is. It is. You know, these these places are set up for you know, uh, you know, two three nights. 
and it's like you know 24 hours tell me about hours, it you know I have, I have some very dear friends who do uh the ultra fest uh, ultra festivals in worldwide. florida it's yeah. a huge part well in florida but it's a worldwide thing mm-hmm. they have them all yeah. over um and and you know, live nation and et cetera, et cetera. And these are huge festivals that take place. I mean, where they have the one in Florida, there's anywhere from maybe six to nine stages. Mm. And in front of any in front of the main stage, there can be as many as 10, 12,000 people there for the one stage. And then there's seven or eight other stages around the huge park, which is Bayfront Park, which is where they, they hold this. Mm. Um, it, it's really quite something. And you do see from the Lazaro Fair, I'm just here in jeans and a t-shirt to have fun, to people that are done up in costume and fall to roll and they bring their props with them and their disco yep. toys and lights. And, <laughs> and where did all that come from? You know, that all came it from- came from, It came before. from what we did as kids. It was not there before. Agreed. I don't remember ever being in, you know, in our culture before that time. I mean, I wasn't around during Prohibition and, you know, all that kind of stuff or in the 1800s. But I think that the concept of going out and partying like that was was pretty much evolved from, you know, uh, places like, you know, the Ice Palace in, in Fire Island transformed to new york city and then you know new york city just you know grew it and the private clubs mm-hmm. like the garage or at that time flamingo and 12 west yeah um and and then Stephen ian kind of put it on the map front and center for everybody else in the world with 54. the club culture today is you know you've got places like house of yes in brooklyn I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, sorry, I'm not. It's a big venue that has a lot of um, theatricality to it. They have people climbing ropes and doing acrobatics and heavy costuming and really trying to recapture that that vibe of Studio 54. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've got you've got um, other clubs in 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 the Brooklyn area, especially. Um, You've got a place called Good Room. You've got a place called Three Dollar Bill. I've heard has, of Three Dollar Bill. They have events, you know, almost every night, you know, um, and it's really capturing, really, really recreating that energy from from a lot of the clubs during this time in New York City. You know, what I find is so interesting is the resurgence of this. Obviously, we were onto something real back in the seventies and it was tangible enough to have withstood the test of time. Yeah. But certainly since we've celebrated anniversaries, like the 40th anniversary of the opening of studio 54 and the proliferation of that bygone era by, by medium, like, like Sirius XM and the studio 54 radio channel and, and the documentary and, and other various things. And then you have a club culture of two generations later kids that are embracing the very concept of the same things that we embrace. So clearly there was some staying power to all of that. I yeah. Would think. Yeah. I mean, it was a fun time, you know, yeah, it, was it, like sure was. <laughs> it was an adventure and it was fantasy and it was all these things that are important to a, a good time and humanity, you know, and, 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 and things that, that, you know, people want to do. 
you know? And so like disco music evolved into house music from the warehouse at in Chicago, Frankie Knuckles, mm -hmm. uh, and that evolved into EDM. Did you know, you know Frankie in New York? I didn't, no. Oh, I, I knew him. Was... I used to see him a lot at the garage. I knew him in New York from, you know, his 70s time here. Yeah. And he got recruited to go out to Chicago. Chicago. Exactly. Yeah, the warehouse. Exactly. But, so you know, music, and, and no disrespect to Frankie or house music and what he created in Chicago was totally viable, but it, it was really a, a mirroring. It, it I, I do believe that the Paradise Garage um, was the inception of much that followed. And, and yeah. you know, when you look at club history and when you look at the anthropological aspect of all of this, which fascinates me, Bill, um, we do see that there are distinct lines between certain cultures of today that draw back to where we were back then. And, you know, how wonderful that you had the insight early on in your career to pull in every facet of your surroundings into your photography, you know, and whether this, this was a, an intended result or just a wonderful result of cumulative efforts, you know, it was really a wonderful result of cumulative effort. I mean, I was, um, I was really just drawn into it and fascinated by it. And it was just right at my doorstep. So, you know, and I was just starting out as a photographer and I was looking every, Every artist, I think, is looking for their personal project, you know? And, yeah, your you know, purpose in life. You're not getting paid for this, but it's something that, you know, you're drawn into and, and you want to pursue. And that was, you know, I was working for the Village Voice. I was working for some other magazines at that time for money. This was really like my personal project. And, um, you know, I had no idea where it was going to end up or if it was going to end up anywhere, you know? But um, but I was I was drawn into it. And it really wasn't until years later, like decades later, that I looked at this work and I said, you know, this is there's there's something about this work that is really important and and has relevance to today, you know, and, you know, and that's when I kind of pulled it out and 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 we did a book called Disco the Bill Bernstein photographs, which was published in um, London. Mm -hmm. And um, that book is sold out and you, wow. you can't get it anymore. You can get it on, you know, I don't, I have a few copies around here, but people sell it on, um, you know, eBay and, and that kind of stuff for like a thousand dollars, $800, a $60 book. Impressive. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, and I and people would ask me, "Can I? Where can I get this book?" And it's like I have a couple here, but I'm not getting rid of those. You have, know? have Have you had any thoughts about going into uh, production, uh, doing another another printing on it? Not of that book. Not of that book. That's done. That's over with. So that's why I did this book, <laughs> Last Dance. Okay. Okay. Uh, I love it. Hold I love up, it. Last Dance. Anyway, so this I self-published. Um, and so I spent most of COVID, you know, going through my archives, looking for stuff that I kind of missed before. And this is what's available on your website. I'm correct. I'm running uh, runner underneath at uh, BillBernsteinFineArt.com. Yeah. I mean, I, I had that website set up for a while. And then when I did this book, I said, well, that's a perfect way to sell this book. 
Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing. And it's amazing to me because I worked with my assistant, Joe, for maybe three or four months, you know, sitting there editing, looking at pictures, scanning new stuff to see what I had, culling through lots and lots and lots of stuff, finding stuff that was with the idea in mind that I wanted to show today's club culture, you know, the 20s, 30, 30 year olds today where a lot of things kind of came from. It's almost like, to me, almost like a history book. For Indeed. Culture, Indeed. You know? What you were saying before uh, about our club culture and the beginnings of it, uh, and granted, neither of us were around in the Roaring Twenties in the era of Prohibition. Yeah. My take on it is that they did a hell of a lot of partying and acting out then, but the social mores of the day did not allow for that gender bending that we were more comfortable with post late sixties, hippies, Woodstock, sex, drugs, and rock and roll era. That's true. And I think that within the context of what was allowable in that post Victorian society, there was just as much wild shit that went on back then as what went on in 54. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was as wild as you could get, you know? Just the context then. of the mores were a little different. Yeah. You didn't have as much of the gender bending or it wasn't quite as obvious. If Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the gay aspect of it, you know, the, 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 the gay culture, the queer culture, I think that was really underneath a lot of the, the, what we experienced in the, in the seventies, you know, at, at club, they brought in a lot of the music, um agreed you know, a lot of the attitude you know a lot of it was was there and you and know, i think that was a direct result of stonewall and people finally saying you know okay we've had enough we're expressing ourselves now and we're going to do it and coupled yeah. with some really talented artists some right. really fine production some really great sounds mm-hmm. all of a sudden you put the music industry on its ear because here you had clubs that were playing records that were selling phenomenal amounts in record stores and there wasn't a radio station that could track it. And record companies were like, how does this happen? Hence how you began the show with your favorite rock and roll station one day playing disco. Well, that was kind of the result of that seventies club culture too. Absolutely. WKTU. WKTU. Yeah, in New York. One day it's like, hey, Absolutely. One more and rock and roll, we're, we're disco. And you, of course, remember WBLS and Frankie Crocker. He was a regular guest at uh, Paradise Garage. I would see yeah. him there all the time. Yeah, yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, WKTU, I mean, that became the disco radio show. And then there was only one rock station in New York. And that was, uh, that was a 102, uh, 102 FM. Yeah. 102 FM. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, so then you had the disco music backlash, you know, there was the, uh, disco demolition in Chicago. Yeah. They burnt the disco records on the baseball field during the, you know, between games. Yeah. Um, you know, and Stephen Ian went to jail. And, you know, so by 81, right, you know, like the way I see it is, you know, who were the who were the big stars for disco music? First of all, 
Donna Summer and and you know Gloria Gaynor were like the queen divas during that time. And the Bee Gees two, had just had African American two African American women. You know. Hmm. Yep. And the Bee Gees had had their reign with Saturday Night Fever, but you also had Chic. Yeah. Which two African American men? Um. And 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 you're right. You had this amalgam where you had a chart in the music business that was not segregated the way there were rock charts, country charts, R&B charts. This was a unified chart. This was the dance music chart. Yeah, exactly. And it was African-American primarily and women. Predominantly. Yeah. Because it was R&B predominantly as a base. And, you know, this was a time, you know, when rock and roll was white men <laughs> primarily, you know, this was before a lot of the, you know, before the Madonnas and the Billie Eilish's and. You oh, know, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, well, my my personal feeling is that all of this stemmed from that early, early 50s rock and roll out of jazz into R&B culture. If there wasn't Motown and the sound of Philadelphia and Memphis sound, we wouldn't have had disco. It, it was a direct offshoot and so many of the yes. popular disco records. And I say that not as disco records, but rather as popular records that were played in the discotheque. Mm. Things like Love Hangover, things right. like the Detroit Emeralds, things like the Tramps. Those are R&B tunes. Yeah. <laughs> they might've been discofied a bit, yeah. but it, it, they were R&B records. And yeah. then you had the disco producers, the Giorgio Marauders of the world that took those footprints of R&B and then embellished them with all the electronica that was available that made them into the super sweet, ultra lush sounds of disco that we know yeah. Casablanca, for example, was so famous for. That when I did production uh, uh, of disco records, I mean, hell, we used orchestras and harps and all kinds of things because it was lush. Mm. Yep. That was definitely an element of the disco sound, you know, the strings and that, that lush sound. And I guess that's what, you know, that's what um, evolved into house without the lush sound, you know, Correct. You, you took and out it relied things, more on its R and B roots. And you've just got down to the beat and the bass and you know, that, that thing and the R and B root, you're right and stripped it away and it became house. And then, mm -hmm. you know, so that was basically, to me, that was the main, you know, change between the disco sound and, and how it evolved. Indeed, and then you had these crossover, like, like West End Records, I think is a perfect example of one of those crossover labels. You know, you had the Tawny Gardner tune, Heartbeat, an iconic disco song, also an iconic house record. Mm a hit record, any which way you look at it, um, you had labels that that did kind of have one foot here and one foot there. Um, mm. Artists that did the same. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think one of the first rap records ever was Blondie. Right. Um, way back when. What was that song? Um, Rapture. Rapture, yep, that was it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, that was one of the first early, early rap, uh, raps, if you will.
Yeah. You know, and and Blondie is not known for being a disco diva, although she did have a few disco hits, including Call Me, which is a tremendous one and a movie theme. Mm. Uh, mm. But mm. she's really, I think, more known as a rock and roll artist than a disco yeah. artist. Per se. I, think every, I think every major artist touched on a disco song from the Rolling Stones to um, ACDC. Paul McCartney. Yeah. The Aerosmith. Sure. Every, they all touched on something. They had to, you know. You're just, at, Barbara Streisand had a disco record, for God's sakes. You're absolutely right. Every yeah. major artist. In fact, I'm sorry. There are a few 12 inches that I really wish I had held on to from back mm. in the day. And one of them was my John Travolta 12 inch of a record that kind of did nothing, but it was cool. And, oh. and, and, um, you know, another one was my Ethel Merman disco record. I oh, forget yeah, which yeah. record she had, but she had a disco hit. I missed that one. Somehow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ethel Merman. Yeah. There was even an Ethel Merman disco record. Okay. <laughs> Everyone got on the bandwagon of disco after Saturday Night Fever in 79. I mean, yeah. everyone was on the bandwagon of it. And that's kind of what happened to disco, you know, that where it sort of became so overly sold out, you know. I mean, they were selling like, you know, cat food with it just about. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was just it it just it it just played itself out in a lot of ways, you know, it just, people just like it, it sold out, you know, I think, I think so. And, and honestly, I don't like the categorization per se, because anything that you makes you get up off of your seat and wiggle your butt and dance is dance music. Yeah. You can call it what you want. But if yeah. it gets you up off your feet and it makes you wiggle your butt, it's dance music. So, yeah. it, you know, to then categorize it into dance music, you know, some, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little more demographic about what it is that makes us move. Or maybe I'll just yeah. dance to anything. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Give it a beat and you're up on the dance floor. Give it a beat. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. You know, I do feel that that the label of disco is valid for what it is you're talking about. But in the context of this conversation, I think we're talking about so much more when we're talking about a heartbeat. We're talking about a heartbeat of a club, a heartbeat yeah. of a culture and how that heartbeat can be expressed in different medium, in different ways, in different cross cultures um, where you have R&B intersecting with rock and roll, intersecting with what was then to become house or rap. Uh, yeah. When you had clubs and venues and places we went that have now become festivals that are created, which are events we go to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're all about, like you say, getting up and dancing or feeling good or, you know, taking your, taking your consciousness to another place whether it's, you know, with or without drugs, you know, um, you know, it's part of the human experience. You know, it's a place to go to change your consciousness somehow. And clearly mm -hmm. there is a need within our essence as human beings to have this contact, to have this experience as part of their, our lives. Otherwise, 
it wouldn't have endured through history. And certainly it wouldn't be alive today in the context that it is alive, that we've just commented on yeah. how we feel our culture has changed and morphed into the current culture. Yeah. People have a need for this community. And through this whole COVID crisis and lockdown, and I have a lot of friends that are part of the live events industry and touring and concerts and whatnot. And we all know how shut down everything has been. Yeah. There is an inherent need, not only for the performers to perform and express their art, but for the audiences to be there and hear it and participate in it and experience their art. And that Absolutely. is way, way different than doing it on Zoom and no matter yeah. how much fun the Zoom parties are, and let me tell you, I had a few that were lifelines for me mm. throughout the pandemic. Um, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I couldn't wait to get back to personal, three-dimensional contact. Sure. Um, it's important. It's a need that we have yeah. as humans, you know? Um, I, you know, people that I knew couldn't wait to get out to, you know, a club again, to a live club with, you know, people and music and, you know, I mean, the COVID thing in some ways was on a much, really a smaller scale, I think, maybe it wasn't, but was a lot like, you know, the, the beginning of the age crisis. I mean, when COVID first came into our consciousness i mean we didn't know how do you get this thing i mean we had no idea of like how it was transmitted you know what it felt like what was it you know you're 100 you know, right there are many many parallels and you are absolutely 100 percent right and yeah. unfortunately um some of us did experience that and we have a point of reference and so many didn't and have none and i think that's where a lot of the fear and, and misinformation and misconceptions come from which yeah is also something that we experienced. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of similarities. Of course, I, I think having lived through both that the AIDS crisis was a lot more deadly and devastating for some reason. I mean, I know a lot of a science. lot died with COVID, but- Science, because there was no yeah. science and there was a refusal to look, in my humble opinion, if when the first people started getting sick, they had initiated science to find out why, instead of pointing fingers and saying, it's a gay disease, we don't have to worry about it, we would have yeah. been two years ahead of a thousand people dying, even if it's just a thousand people dying. But yeah. when it was just a gay disease, nobody worried about it. Well, guess what? Then it became spread through IV drug use. So it became a drug addicts and a gay disease. And yeah. then it became spread through guys who would bring it home to their wives unknowingly because they had sex with a hooker who was an IV drug user on and on and on. And all of a sudden yeah. it became prevalent in the straight community. And now it was everybody's problem. It wasn't a gay disease. Right. And that is when the sciences began. And very sadly, if we had begun the science instead of pointing fingers at other people that weren't us yeah. and letting them worry about it, I think we would have um, mitigated a lot. That said, I think what we learned through that, we did take to heed in the COVID crisis in that we had the science as a reference point. So we were halfway there 
And we jumped on it because we had been here before. We knew yeah. if we didn't jump on it immediately, it could and would get out of hand. That's true. That's true. So we learned some lessons from that whole AIDS experience. Hopefully, uh, you know, I think I, I'd like I'd like to think that we did, and we're progressive as progressing as more of an enlightened society. Yeah, it's it's interesting how there are there's another similarity uh, parallel when the AIDS kind of the first article that I remember was like in I think eighty or eighty one in the New York Times about HIV and AIDS. You're and right. the president then was Reagan, and Reagan yeah. didn't want to talk about it for the first two years. That is he correct. Totally, he totally, you know, minimalized it. Minimalized and, it and swept it under the rug. And do you remember the 60 Minutes special that was done also, I believe, in 81, 88? It was right around that same time. Yeah. But it didn't have a name. And it was all swept under the rug. And, yeah. and very sadly, one of my friends was interviewed for that story. And hmm. it was shortly thereafter that he died when there was no terminology called AIDS. Wow. This was the mysterious gay cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, if you think about COVID, um, you know, it was kind of marginalized or minimalized yes. by the Trump administration. Oh, yeah, you and think? Don't worry about it. It's like we got it under control. It's, you know, it's a bad cold. Don't worry about it. Well, for, yeah. For, if, well, thankfully, thankfully, whatever lessons we did learn from the 80s, we didn't take the don't worry about it to heat. And there were enough people that did yeah. say, no, we're worrying about it. So that by the time we had a new administration giving new directives, we also, the trials for the vaccines were almost completed. Mm -hmm. And we were on our way to conquering the disease, even if we hadn't quite yet conquered the logistics of the social mechanism, if you will. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. We're still working on that. Oh my God, yeah. I think that's a never ending struggle, my friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I hope that we've been able as a society to move forward and at the same time look back and appreciate the lessons we've learned and see how some of the joy transcends age groups, transcends demographics, yeah. transcends eras. And, 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 you know, when you see, laughter and joy in people's faces. It could be a cross section of any group of people at any point in time in history. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and you've captured so much of that emotion in your work, Bill, and you've you. shared that work with us. And, and I, I certainly hope that you continue to share stories as you continue on next projects. Um, you know, we encourage everybody to go to Bill's website. And to buy his book, here's his information again on social media. Yeah. It's really, this book is a labor of love for me. Um, you know, I don't know if any of your listeners out there have done a self-published book or not, but, you know, it's not, it's really not about the money. Um, you know, it's really about trying to say something, tell a story, you know, show people something that you feel is important. And so that's really what this book is for me. I think it's important. I think it's 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 a great 
way to kind of see where a lot of things started and just how um, just a culture of people, you know, in a specific time period and, and what that looked like and, and how it's relevant to today. I think it's so relevant. And I think the fact that you were able to literally freeze time mm. with your art speaks volumes and it, it, it goes beyond the story you can tell because the photograph itself is the emotion and it is mm. emotion evoking. And, and even if it's the front of the building with the two security people standing there, the front of that building tells you a lot about what's inside as well. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, um, it's history, it's history, you know, it's, um, it's, it's relevant. It's all relevant. It's very relevant. And if we don't know where we've come from, it's really hard to plan a good path forward and know where you're going. And I think that it's the essential building block of every human being, whether it's your own personal history, whether it's your family history and background, or whether it is just the history of your life. The, for me, at this age, the pleasure is... Firstly, in being vertical and lucid and being able to remember all of this wonderfulness. <laughs> Secondly, in being grateful that I was there at that moment in time when I was able to experience what the city was like. When I go to New York City now, Times Square is a completely different environment. Yeah. Completely yeah. different environment. Right. It's a different environment than when I did work in designs in the 90s and in the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and it certainly is different than what it was in the 70s. Oh, when sure. Personally, I miss the CD element to Times Square. I think <laughs> that it added color and character <laughs> and flavor to the area that I just don't get with Disney characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, or or superheroes walking the streets. Yeah. There's exactly. I don't know. I just think that there's something about New York City where that element of seediness must be part of the city. It's part of the city's history. Yeah. It's it's unpolished and uncombed and all that kind of stuff. I just saw Midnight Cowboy again. Oh, what a great movie. Gosh, yeah. did I mean, that really back? documented that the whole Times Square experience back then, I think. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean, but the, and that is a very valid part of New York and New York history. And mm. I personally would rather see a monument to the righteous past that's a restoration of what was than knocking it down and putting up something new and kind of whitewashing it like it was never there. That is a oh part of why Hell's Kitchen is called Hell's Kitchen. Mm. There's a neighborhood that still bears the name, but anything that made it Hell's Kitchen from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, yeah. I don't think that's there anymore. That's you true. Know, kind of like Little Italy. Right. There, there's parts to Little Italy that go way, 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 way back. Mm -hmm. And when you uncover some of those things, you know, there really are buildings that had speakeasies, you know, how cool is it? 
And I'm sure you've been to clubs where at one point in time, it was a speakeasy. At one point in time, you went into an after hours bar and, and you thought, well, gosh, in the 40s, that's knock, knock, knock on the wall. Look, yeah. see, okay, you can come in. I mean, we were all there. That was our New York City in the 70s. I don't know if that still exists in New York. Yeah, does it? it does. There are there are still some places like that in New York where you go into an antique store and you, you know, press a button and a door opens up and you walk into the bar. You know, there's, there's, I mean, they're kind of more like um, novelty kind of places today than they are real, you know, kind of speakeasy sort of places. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, that's a great part of what New York is or was, you know. Indeed. Really. And neighborhoods that, that, you know, like I said, Soho places, the Lower East Side, um, yeah. Yeah. not the, the the lower west side uh the 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 west village um where the piers were uh the meatpacking district oh yeah There's one butcher in the meatpacking district now amid yeah. all of the designer stores and fancy hotels yeah, probably just one but that was if a plethora that, yeah. of not only butchers and meat packers but a plethora of clubs and nightlife yeah I can yeah. name within a 10 block radius, probably a half a dozen easily. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Things change. Oh, they do. And how lucky for us that we were there and how lucky for all of us that you documented them. Uh, thanks, Marsha. It was a pleasure being on your show and talking to you, um, remembering some of those things that we talked about. And um, I really enjoyed myself. Thank, Thank you. you, Bill. It was an absolute delight having you here. And uh, the door is always open when you've got another project or Great. another bit of anthropological insight for us. I would love to have you back. Great. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best to you, Bill. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Great. Take care and be well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.